Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, October 2nd, 2022, and this is show number 908. Well, it was fun trying to do the live show without Steve last week, uh, but uh, I'm glad he's back, even though it did go off nearly flawlessly last week. I'm glad to see the live chat room has people all the way from England, Australia, and all over the U.S., so we are having a lot of fun in there. You should join us sometime. I always say at the end of the show, podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time. It's a lot of fun. Well, about a week ago, our buddy Ron saw a three-wheeled electric vehicle driving near where we live. He figured out that it was the Electra Mechanica Solo. I got curious about the car, and I went to the website, and I discovered that they had the Solo at my local mall, and I could even test drive one. Of course, I immediately told Bodie Grimm of the Kilowatt Podcast all about it. The Solo is actually starting more production right near his house, so he could also do a test drive. We made a pact to both do the test drive and then get together on his show to talk about it. I'll do a tiny bit of a spoiler here. This vehicle is not for everyone, but at $18,000 US for a single person car that you can charge overnight on a 110 volt outlet, it's pretty intriguing. Steve also drove the Solo and we both thought it was super fun. I highly recommend you check out the Kilowatt podcast in your podcatcher of choice and look for the episode entitled Electra Mechanica Solo Test Drive or just follow the link in the show notes. Rogue Amoeba is celebrating 20 years in Mac software development this month, and in honor of that accomplishment, I asked CEO Paul Kafasis to come on Chit Chat Across the Pond to take us on a walk down memory lane. We start by talking about Audio Hijack 1.0 and talk about the 266 MHz power PC they used to develop the product. We talk about the problems that Rogamiba's software solves, including SoundSource, which is probably their application with the broadest appeal to most people. We talk through design decisions, including both making Audio Hijack completely accessible to visually impaired users and making it easier for all of us to understand. I even ask Paul the burning question on everyone's mind, where the heck did the name Rogamiba come from? Now, this episode is not an ad for Rogue Amoeba, and a lot of people gave me great feedback saying it wasn't an ad, Uh, but I'm afraid I do gush quite a bit because I'm such a giant fan of everything they do. I spend time talking about how amazing their support staff is. I bother them a lot, which prompts Paul to explain the structure of the company and why it works so well. We talk about their pricing model in contrast to the companies that are adopting subscription pricing. And finally, I ask Paul, When are they going to make a multi-track editor of my dreams? We had a blast recording together and swapping stories. Now, they had a 20% off discount that was supposed to stop at the end of September, on September 30th. But as of today, October 2nd, the link still worked. So if you haven't jumped on it and you hear this soon enough, you might still be able to get 20% off by going to macaudio.com. But of course, Take a look for Chit Chat Across the Pond, episode 744, in your podcatcher of choice. This one's very definitely a tiny tip, but it's a sort of important uh, PSA, I think. Like many in the community, I had my custom domain hosted with Google right up until they decided to start charging me real money. Like many in the community, I have iCloud Plus, so I moved my custom domain over to iCloud. If you did that as well, there's something I don't know whether everybody would have thought of, and it just occurred to me. 
So months ago was when I converted over to iCloud Plus for my uh, custom domain email for podfeed.com, and it only just occurred to me last week that I no longer have a distinct password for my custom domain email. I realized that my rescue email for my Apple ID email was my custom domain email, which means if either one of them got breached, I have no rescue options because they're actually the same thing now. I found a handy-dandy support article at Apple in which they show you how to change your rescue email address. And of course, there's a link in the show notes. I hopped into appleid.apple.com and I changed it to a third address I maintain so I now can sleep at night. I'm only embarrassed that it took me this long to realize the problem that I could have had. I hope maybe I rescued at least one of you out there as well. You know I love making diagrams. When I first started using the amazing and free diagrams.net to create my masterpieces, I used the built-in shapes to represent the elements of my diagrams. I was a big fan of rounded rectangles, and I'd use a nice gradient shade to make the rectangles a bit more interesting. If I was in a playful mood, I might try to use a thought bubble with text, or even a rhombus. Diagrams.net has a vast library of more specific shapes that you can search for or scroll to, but I have to admit it's very rare I find the shape that provides the perfect visual representation for what I'm trying to convey. For example, I recently made my elaborate diagram of the solar, battery, and grid power flow for my home. I wanted to represent the grid power with one of those transmission towers for high voltage lines. If I could get just the right icon, I knew it would help the viewer of my diagram to understand it better. Diagrams.net didn't have anything like that when I searched. In some cases, Diagrams.net has icons that aren't that bad. They did have a cute little yellow car with a plug coming out of it that could represent an electric vehicle, and then a little house that wasn't bad, but their solar panel icon wasn't terribly good at conveying what it represented. Now, maybe you're not a diagram fiend like I am, but you'd like to add some visual elements in the form of icons to a slide deck or a text document. If you have this need, you can go out to the internet and search for line art, but anything you find that's remotely representative of what you're trying to convey will have usage rights that are often cumbersome. Sometimes they only require attribution, but how do you do attribution on a diagram in a, or, or in a slide deck? That would be really clumsy and messy. Do you put a text box in the corner listing everyone whose work contributed to the diagram? It would be messy, and if you're less lucky, you have to pay a fortune for the artwork you found that does convey what you want to represent. You can also find paid-for services for images, but they're very expensive, and I don't really want images. I want icons and I don't want to pay an arm and a leg for it. I'm willing to pay something, but not an arm and a leg. Maybe, you know, a pinky toe's worth, but no more. I found the perfect service for my needs. It's called Noun Project at thenounproject.com. It's a very hard name to remember as it doesn't say anything about icons, but their mission statement explains it a little bit. Noun Project is building global visual language that unites us, a language that allows quick and easy communication no matter who you are or where you are. If you can think of icons as being representation of nouns, the Noun Project sort of makes sense. All right, let's get pricing out of the way. The Noun Project allows you to get royalty-free icons for which you do not have to provide attribution, and they do provide some value at no cost. But for a small fee, they provide incredible value. I put a link to the pricing plans in the show notes, and but let me go through a little bit of the basics of the pricing. For free, you can get access to more than 3 million icons. 
You can download PNGs that are not scalable or in SVG format, which is scalable vector graphics, and that allows you to scale them as big or as small as you want with no degradation. The downside to the free account, though, is you have to give attribution. And I explained that's kind of messy. So let's say you have a small term project and you won't be needing icons indefinitely. You just have a one-off. You can buy a one-month plan for $2.99 US and get access to the same 3 million icons and you don't have to give attribution. Seriously, that's not even, even a pinky toe. Now the downside to the free and the month-to-month -month plans is that you will only get black and white icons. You can't download transparent versions of them. So that means you're gonna get this big white background wherever you put the icon and you can't really change the shape of the icon. If you make diagrams and artwork often, you want the plan I selected, which is the grand sum of $40 per year. That works out to $3.33 per month. With this plan, you can edit the color, the background, and shape. You have unlimited icon licenses. You get access to their uh, apps. You can create custom favorites, and the website doesn't have any ads. I would say that I got my $40 worth out of the Noun Project just for, for using it for my battery diagram alone. Now, if you're a business, you might be interested in their team subscription that allows sharing of icons across teams. This is great for things like company logos and that sort of thing. As I walk through why I think the Noun Project is so cool, keep in mind that I'll be talking about what I get for that $40 per year. All right, now with pricing out of the way, I can tell you how cool the Noun Project is. The Noun Project is really cool. <laughs> First of all, they aren't kidding about how many icons they have. If you type solar panel into search, you will get 2,000, sorry, 2,325 results. I love this because I can scroll through until I see the perfect icon to represent the idea that I'm trying to get across. Once you select an icon, you'll see options below it to customize the icon. You can change the color with a simple color picker or by entering the hex or RGB values for the color you want. You can rotate or flip the icon vertically or horizontally. I needed that option when I found the perfect solar panel icon, but it was pointing in a direction that would have looked very weird in my project. You can set the background to different colors, but I usually keep it set to transparent. With a transparent background, I can drop icons into blog posts or diagrams, and they aren't all blocky covering other things up. You know, in a diagram, I want to have connectors that go right up to the icon. If it's got a background, a lot of times it can't do that. You can also choose a frame around the icon that's square, circular, or even a ring shape. After you configure the icon the way you like it, you can choose to either download an SVG, a scalable graphic, or a PNG. Now, since PNGs are a static size, you can see the pixel dimensions under the download button with an invitation to change it before you do your download. If you're downloading an SVG, you can ignore the size option because vector graphics are infinitely scalable. One of the things I really like about the Noun Project is that the settings for things like the size and having a transparent background are saved so you don't have to faff about with the options every time you come to the website if you usually like them the same size. Now, I've been using the Noun Project for quite a while, and it was only as I prepared to write up this article that I discovered that in addition to the web interface, they actually have standalone apps and plugins for other apps and web services. Now, I wonder how long these apps have been available and I just never noticed they existed. I downloaded the Mac app and after authenticating to my account, I was able to simply drag and drop from the app into the document that accepts images in that way. I may have squealed like a little girl upon this discovery. I could have been dragging and dropping all this time, not downloading to a folder and naming and all that nonsense. The Mac app has a basic search field and then you're shown a grid of icons from which you can choose. 
You can change how many you see on the page by changing the zoom level in the bottom right. Across the bottom, you have options to change the color and choose the download format from PNG, SVG, PDF, or Auto. I'm not sure how it decides what format you want if you choose Auto. In my tests, it always chose PNG if I had it set to Auto. Now, I'll stick with the SVG whenever possible, uh, and I would suggest you do that as well if your application accepts scalable vector graphics. Not only do you have more freedom on the sizing of the icon, but the SVG files are also significantly smaller. A 1200 by 1200 pixel PNG was 119 kilobytes, while the same F SVG of the same icon was only 2 kilobytes, so 119 down to 2. Now, I know 119 kilobytes isn't very big, but if you're using a lot of icons, you're increasing the size of your document, and the format you're getting isn't even as flexible. Unlike the website for the Noun Project, the Mac app doesn't appear to allow you to change the background color. It's always transparent. If you need to have a background on an icon, you can always put a rectangle of a different color underneath it, uh, underneath your icon in your final project. I like the way the color options work in the Mac app. The color button shows the most recently chosen color, and next to it is the hex number for the color. If you click on the color itself, you're given the, snap, the standard Apple color eyedropper. This is super cool because you could very quickly match a color you've already chosen for another element in which you're building, or find a color on a website to match. If you want to use the standard Apple color picker, click on the hex number for the color. I know hex numbers are weird, but you'll get the hang of it pretty quickly. I am in love with the Mac app over using the website. Don't get me wrong, the website is really slick and easy to use, but it's so much more efficient to use the app. I'm really glad I discovered it. So before discovering the app, I would go to my web browser, log into the Noun project, find the icon I wanted, download it to my computer, move it to the folder for the project I was working on, give it a new name, and then drag it into my diagram. Now I merely open the app, find what I want, set the color and the format, and drag it right into my document. There's no need to download, save, or name the icons. This is going to be a huge time saving for me. I can hear Alan asking something right now. What about Windows users? Well, evidently, they don't seem to have a Windows dedicated app. However, they have several options that will work for Windows users. If you use Adobe, Illustrator, Photoshop, or InDesign, they have plugins for PC and Mac. They also have add-ons for Microsoft Word and PowerPoint, if you're of that persuasion, and those plugins work on Windows, the Mac, or the web. They even have plugins for Google Slides and Google Docs. I tested the plugin for Google Docs. After you install it, it's available in the Google Doc menus under Extensions. If you don't have an account for the Noun Project, or you haven't logged in yet via the plugin, you get access to what they call their Starter Pack. They say that this Starter Pack comes with 100 of their top searched icons as one royalty-free set. Now, that might be enough icons for you, or you might want more, but in any case, it would give you a free way to see how the plugin works. The process for putting icons into a Google Doc from the plugin is a little clumsier than I would have hoped. I had this vision that I would simply be able to drag and drop icons from this, uh, this extension. Instead, you find an icon you like, you choose a color, set the size that you want, and then there's an insert icon button to push. As soon as you move your cursor to push the insert button, it will change to a download icon instead. It seems to sort of download within the app though. It's not downloading to your downloads folder, so that's good. A little progress bar goes by, then it will insert it into your document. It does appear that Google Docs only supports PNGs. If I really need to add icons to a Google Doc, this seems like a good enough solution. But for everything else I do, using the dedicated Mac app will be much more efficient. 
I tested dragging and dropping icons from the Mac app into the web interface for diagrams.net, into their dedicated app called Draw.io, into my blogging software, MarsEdit, and into Apple Pages, and it worked in all of these. The one place it didn't work to drag and drop from the Mac app was in Google Docs. So I think it's a limitation of Google Docs itself that you can't drag and drop. Now, I know they have plugins for Word and PowerPoint, but I tried dragging from the Noun Project's Mac app, and it worked perfectly there too, so I didn't bother to download the plugins for those applications. The Noun Project also has photos in addition to icons. These are licensed in a much different way than their icons. It's a separate uh, you know, licensing system. For example, you can get a 5 megapixel download of an image for $8.50, so that you're just buying one image. It's a royalty-free download, but it's a non-commercial license. If you need a photo for a commercial project, you can download a 10 megapixel image or even larger, but it'll cost you $33. Now, if you're willing to give attribution to the artist, you can use their basic free download, which is a 0.2 megapixel image. A 0.2 megapixel image is 3.6 by 2.5 inches at 150 dpi. I stuck one in the show notes if you want to see it. Now, I'm not really the target market for for photos from the Noun Project, but I tried out their free image option. They did a couple of things that I liked. They gave me a spot to easily copy the correct attribution. I always want to do that right, and I never know what to say. They were also very specific to say the attribution must be in a visible location. I've always wondered whether I could get away with, can I just put it into a hoverable title on the web? And if that's not allowed, I'd rather know. When I downloaded the free JPEG, I discovered that the image was already subtly watermarked with the attribution, making it easy to comply with their licensing requirements. The image is small, like I said, it's embedded in the show notes for you to see, but it's not bad for free. The bottom line is that if you have a need to insert icons into documents, presentations, fancy pants artwork, or to make diagrams, check out the Noun Project and see if it works for you. The convenience I get out of having access to so many icons without worrying about licensing and the flexibility on color and formatting makes $40 a year for the Noun Project a no-brainer for me. Let's be honest with each other. We don't buy cell phones that happen to have cameras. We buy cameras that happen to come on cell phones. In my personal observation, the biggest driver on why people buy a new phone is whether the cameras are better than the model they currently own. The iPhone 14 Pro has three lenses on the back, just like the iPhone 13 Pro did, but it actually has four cameras. I'm going to talk about how all that's done at a later date. Today, I'd like to talk about how, in Apple Photos, it's much harder with the 14 Pro to figure out which camera you use to capture an image. If that's not at all important to you, then you can just skip past this whole article. But if you'd like to know more, stick with me. The iPhone 13 Pro had three cameras. In the camera app, they're labeled 0.5, 1x, and 3. I don't know for the life of me why only the 1x camera gets to have an x. I would have written 0.5x, 1x, and 3x, but the time to rant about that is in the past. The info pane in Apple Photos for both macOS and iOS reveals information about how the image was captured. This information is called the EXIF data, Exchangeable Image File Format. And that's what camera nerds talk about a lot is the EXIF data, but it's going to be important. For images taken with the iPhone 13 Pro's 0.5 camera, Apple will label this image with ultra-wide camera. It will also tell you the focal length, which is 13 millimeters, and the aperture size, f1.8. Now, you don't have to worry your pretty little head about those numbers to know which camera took the photo because the image is clearly labeled as using the ultra-wide camera. Likewise, an image taken with the 13 Pro's 1x camera will clearly be labeled wide camera. 
And finally, if you tap on the three to take a photo with your iPhone 13 Pro, that image will be labeled telephoto camera. All of that makes perfect sense. I think even if we're not super nerds on this subject, we can tell which one of these images was created by pushing which button on our camera app. Now let's switch gears to what happens with the iPhone 14 Pro's cameras. On iPhone 14 Pro, the camera app on iOS now gives us four options instead of three. They're 0.5, 1X, 2, and 3. Again, I'm baffled why they don't give us an X on all four options or none of them. I'm going to have to get over that, I guess. But uh, when you open the info panel in Apple Photos, images taken by the four different cameras are all labeled with the same name. They all say back triple camera. Even though Apple doesn't make it obvious to us, we can still figure out which camera took an image. They're just going to make it hard for us. Remember I told you with the iPhone 13 Pro's camera, you didn't have to worry your pretty little head about those numbers for focal length and aperture? I'm sad to say that we will have to worry our pretty little heads with the iPhone 14 Pro. The clue as to which camera took the photo is buried in the focal length, which does change depending on the camera. In order to learn which one is which, let's take a look at the information Apple gives us on the iPhone 14 Pro tech specs page. I put an image in the show notes of what Apple says on the tech specs page, and I also copied them into a little table for reference, along with a bit of other information. Also makes it accessible to do that. I could read out all the numbers due to make your head spin, but instead, I'm going to teach you how to tell which camera took an image but by memorizing only one number. The main, also known as wide, or also known as 1x camera, has a focal length of 24 millimeters. That's it. That's all you need to memorize. Memorize 24 millimeters. That's the main 1x camera. From there, you can derive all of the others. The only thing that might throw you that here is that the math is kind of inexact. I'll explain as we go through these. The ultra-wide camera says 0.5 on it. So, if you see a shot with roughly half of the 24 millimeters of the main camera, you know that's the ultra-wide. Half of 24 is 12 millimeters. But the info window will say 14 millimeters, but you know, that's close enough to be able to spot which one it is. The 2X camera, the 2X telephoto camera says two in the camera app. The main camera is 24 millimeters. Remember that, that's all we gotta know, 24. So doubling it gives you 48 millimeters for the 2X camera. So you know, if you see a 48 millimeter image, that was taken with your 2X telephoto. Now I bet you can figure out how the 3X camera works all by yourself. 3 times 24 millimeters is 72 millimeters. Of course, it's not 72, but it's 77 and that's close enough. So if you see the 77 millimeter focal length in the info window, you know that's the 3X camera. Now I wish the numbers were exact multipliers, but even Apple is inconsistent on this. In the info window for an ultra-wide image, it says 14 millimeters, but if you look at their tech spec page, it says the ultra-wide is 13 millimeters. And of course, the math says it should be 12 millimeters. I guess math is more of a guideline here. Well, the bottom line is that if you want to know which camera took a given photo, look in the info window for 24 millimeters on your Mac. If you find it, that's the main 1X camera. See roughly half a 24 millimeter? That's your 0.5X ultra-wide camera. See double 24 millimeters, then it was taken at 2X. See some number vaguely close to triple that? It's your 3X telephoto camera. I'm sure glad I was able to clarify all of this for you. And here's hoping Apple puts the real names back in so no one has to do the math to figure out which camera they used. I do think there's hope on that front. I've been talking this whole time about macOS photos. In iOS 16, iPhone 14 Pro images in the Photos app clearly say telephoto camera, main camera, and ultra-wide camera. 
I verified that this clarity is not available on iOS 15 and iPadOS 15. So fingers crossed that macOS Ventura and iPadOS 16 brings this information back to us. Until then, have fun doing the math. You know who's awesome? John Murray, that's who. John heard me say that you can make one-time donations via PayPal. So he went to podfeet.com slash PayPal, and he chose a dollar amount that demonstrated the value he gets from the shows we create here at the Podfeet Podcast. Not only that, he wrote a lovely note to go along with it. He wrote, Thank you for another quarter of great shows and sharing your expertise. Even when you were on vacation, the shows kept coming. Thank you and the rest of the great hosts. You know, he made my day, and it made me really happy that he recognized the contributions that Bart and Alistair make to keep the streak alive. If you'd like to be cool like John, consider a one-time donation to show your appreciation. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchotts. Uh, we didn't give you a lot of time to come up with any great horror stories this week, Bart. No, but the universe didn't entirely disappoint. Um, <laughs> the volume is a bit lower than I guess it could be, but there's plenty going on all the same. We only had a week. <laughs> yeah. Um, one little bit of follow-up first. Um, Apple have removed a whole bunch of really quite high-prominence Russian apps from the App Store, which they say is to comply with Russian sanctions. So apparently the company that owns the apps was technically not Russian, but they were breaching the sanctions. So Apple said, well, then goodbye to you, apparently. And the Russian government are extremely cranky. Ooh. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, and then breaking news as of, I think it was Friday it broke. Um, a pair of zero-day exploits in the Microsoft Exchange server, which can be strung together to get remote code execution. Um, this obviously means that it's time to buy your friendly sysadmin a nice big coffee on Monday morning, because if you run your own Exchange server rather than using a cloud-hosted one, you know, software service, then your sysadmin spent their weekend patching your server instead of having a weekend. So they deserve a coffee. Um, uh, okay. Kind of an interesting pair of bugs, actually, um, because, so, okay, so the two bugs together, one bug allows... By the way, I don't actually know what Exchange is. I've heard the term for years, but I don't know what it is. It is the server that powers Microsoft's groupware, so your Exchange server gives you, basically, it's the brains behind Outlook. It's mail. Thank you. And calendar and contacts and file sharing, and so, what is it, what's, what was the other one? Uh, Lotus Notes, think Lotus Notes only from Microsoft, because that's the product they killed. Um, okay. But it, it's your full groupware. So if you're a corporation running your own exchange, that basically is how your organization works, right? Without contacts, calendars, and mail, oh, not much left, is there? It's pretty serious. Well, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's not in that. <laughs> I don't know, CAD design, you know, manufacturing, billing, and uh, uh, CRM. and Well, uh, a lot of that stuff is integrated as Exchange apps and stuff. So it's kind of, it's very much wedged in. But anyway, it's a big deal. Uh, a lot of people don't use their own anymore because it's also a really difficult server to keep up and running. It's quite, ah. quite a, it's, yeah, it's a tricky one. Um, okay, now that I know what we're talking about, now you can tell me the uh, the, the bug. 
Yeah, so there's a pair of them which individually don't sound too bad. So one of them takes an authenticated user and allows that user to inject arbitrary code into the server. So you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, an authenticated user, that can't be too bad. But that's where the second bug comes in. So I, I don't understand the first one yet. If I'm an authenticated user, how are they making me inject a bug? Okay, if the attacker is an authenticated user, the attacker can inject malicious code into the server. So you as a user can't execute. How did they get to be an authenticated user? It's a game of two halves, right? So the second half is once you get in, you can execute arbitrary code. So now I'm getting to the first half. Oh, okay. If you have two-factor authentication, there is step one, check your username and password and load your two-factor details and then do whatever you're supposed to do to challenge for the second factor. So, you know, some people might have SMS enabled, some people might have time-based tokens enabled or whatever. So there has to be some code between your password is fine, now what am I supposed to do? It is possible for every piece of code to have a bug. That's where the second bug is. It's between your password is fine and now I'm going to make you do two-factor auth. So this means it bypasses two-factor auth, but it doesn't bypass the username and password. So at first glance, you might think, ah, yeah, this is grand. But the thing is, if the attackers get in as any user, they can use a second bug to completely hack the server. So if you have a million users, well, that's a bit too big of a number. If you have a thousand users, your entire infrastructure is as weak as the worst password of anyone on your server. (laughs) And there are an awful, awful, awful lot of password breaches, which contain an awful lot of username and password combos to try. And of course, you can do a bit of brute forcing. And there's an awful lot of squishy organic bits to go have a go with a bit of phishing. So the bar to getting any one username and password combination is not that high. And the more valuable a target you are, probably the more users you have, which makes that target surface to find even smaller, even easier, I should say. Let let me ask a question, though. When when you said it bypasses 2FA, do you mean that, um, so I've typed in a username and password, the, I, I can take advantage of this bug and I never get prompted for 2FA or it just ignores whatever I type into 2FA or... So your malicious code, so you have, you submit a username and a password, but you don't submit it using the normal web interface. You submit it using your own low-level tools, which add some, technically speaking, illegal glop, which trips up the software in such a way that it does your bidding instead of what it's supposed to do. Oh, okay. Right, right. That's when it just takes a left turn. Exactly, exactly. It's off the reservation, right? It never gets around to what it was supposed to be doing because you've just hijacked it. So that other code never happens. And you now have the ability to do whatever you need to do, which is that you trigger the second bug, which takes your ability to execute code as the user to, I now can do anything I want as the server. And that is obviously extremely bad. Is this being exploited in the wild yet? It would appear to be, there's a little, there's a little bit of, unclarity about all this. So it was responsibly disclosed a month ago and the people who responsibly disclosed it a month ago got fed up of Microsoft doing absolutely positively nothing and decided it was time to release information about the fact that the bug existed while being very careful not to explain too much so that in theory no one should be able to reproduce it. But that assumes that no one else already knows about it, which isn't, you know, if I can find a bug, you can find the same bug, right? There's no reason right. to assume. 
that no one else has found it. So they only waited 30 days. That's a little short, right? Or is that the new standard? That is one of the commonly used standards. And it is also the case that something as disastrous as a serious bug in such an important piece of software tends to Mm -hmm. get the shorter normal. Yeah, that's that's a good point. If it's going to be that big of an impact, you know, tick-tock, let's go. Let's get this Precisely. going. So only when the researchers released the little bit of detail they did, did Microsoft come out with an answer, which is, we're working on a bug, and in the meantime, here's a workaround. Hopefully they're working on a patch. They are working on a patch, and so the reason your sysadmin has been up late is because your sysadmin has been trying to apply a patch, which is basically adding some rules to the web server that sits in front of Exchange to make it notice the weird packets that are tripping it up and to try block the weird packets before they get into the bit of code where it'll trip up. Okay, so this isn't really a patch. This is a, more of a workaround then. Absolutely, totally and utterly a workaround. And Which like means any workaround, all the sysadmins get to do it again. They all get to do it again, but also a workaround is workaroundable. It's kind of a cat and mouse game, right? If you're trying to find every pattern of ways you could possibly exploit this bug, the bad guys are trying to find a new way of exploiting the bug that your pattern doesn't match. Yeah, the bad actors are definitely going to go after that one, right? Yeah, exactly. So basically, stay tuned for how this one turns out. But definitely, if you're an organization that runs your own exchange, your sysadmin could do with a coffee. Definitely. Nothing we can do as users. Zero for us to do. Literally absolutely nothing, which is why it's, you know, I'm not putting it in the main news or in the action alerts. It's just, you know, the the action is buy a coffee for someone, not not panic or stress. Right. But so you're saying if if you have this as a managed service, then you don't you won't experience this this flaw or it's just it's somebody else's job to fix it. At the very least, the latter, but I think also that the code base in the legacy self-hosted product is not the same as the code base driving the cloud-based new variants. So we don't know all the details, Mm. so it is entirely possible that it literally isn't in the other ones. And even if it is, then it's still someone else's problem to stick the, effectively, the firewall rules in front of it. Okay. So yes and, I guess, is the answer to your question. Um, action alerts then one important update so what we talked about here right this exchange bug is the textbook definition of a zero day vulnerability we know about this problem we're pretty sure it's being actually no sorry Alison I, I need to correct myself you asked me is it being exploited in the world yes it is that's how the security researchers discovered it they were looking at the logs of a successful attack and reverse engineered it from okay. the successful attack so yes it is being used in the wild Define zero day again, because I keep hearing different definitions of that. Okay, so it is a word that is horribly abused, but the actual meaning is a bug which is being exploited before a patch is available. So you cannot protect yourself by patching because the patch doesn't exist yet. So it is being exploited. It is being exploited. If so it's it called exploited, that. Okay. And there have been zero days since the patch has been released. In fact, there have been minus infinity days, you know, minus question mark, question mark, question mark days. So the concept is that there are zero, zero days that you've had time to patch and you're already in trouble. That's where the name comes okay. from. But in the media, okay. it's come to mean serious bug. So when someone mm. wants you to pay attention, they call it a zero day because that makes it sound like, you know, DEFCON 1 or something. Right. It, it actually has a meaning, but people use it wrongly. They just use it to mean serious. 
So there okay. was a whole bunch of hoo-ha about there being a zero-day exploit in WhatsApp, which is really ironic because the news stories were copying and pasting from WhatsApp's uh, release notes for the patch they released. So literally, it is the opposite of a zero-day. We discovered the bug from the patch. It is in the notes saying what we have fixed. That is not a zero-day. That's the opposite of a zero-day. It's patched before it was exploited. Okay. That that wouldn't necessarily be true just because the the update notes said it patched a bug. That wouldn't necessarily mean it wasn't a zero-day. Okay, apologies. What I was trying to say was that we learned about the bug from the release note. Yeah, okay. Therefore, it is the opposite of a zero-day. So, <laughs> what's funny, you've linked to a, a Naked Security article that is, is tit- entitled WhatsApp Zero-Day Exploit, in quotes... But it's the word trying to explain that it's not a zero day. Yeah. <laughs> they could have made Which that title did. a little more clear. Uh, I guess those quotes are, you need to imagine them with giant big, you know, hand gestures. <laughs> big air quotes. <laughs> big, big, big air quotes in that one. Yeah. I can hear it in Paul Duncan's voice. Um, zero day. Anyway. Uh, okay. But yeah, so basically, now, it's a real bug, and the details are in the release notes of the patch. So do you know what you should do? Patchy, patchy, <laughs> patch, patch. Right, right. It, it, it's a uh, it's a dis- it's a distinction without a difference to us at this point. Precisely. Yeah. Uh, if it really were a zero day, we couldn't patch. It isn't a zero day. We can patch. So patch. Right, right. I still can't believe how many times I hear people just say, you know, uh, should I do this update? My answer is always going to be yes. Every time you ask me, always. I mean, unless unless the first number changes from a seven to an eight. It's always going to be yes. Yeah, and I guess maybe it would be nice if security updates and updates were and feature updates were more clearly distinguished from each other. But on the whole, yeah, the answer is yes. Yeah. Uh, in terms of worthy warnings, then, I am sorry to say our Antipodean friends have not had a good time of things. Um, Antipodean? Uh, it is a what very is fancy word for people who live on the opposite end of the world from us. Your antipode is the person who is on the opposite side of the world if you draw a line from you through the earth. It's, the antipodes so who, is what British people call Australia and New Zealand. Oh, okay. So you mean Australia or do you mean New Zealand when you say this? I mean Australia in this case. And technically okay. speaking from Ireland, our antipode is in the water. Uh, but it's near New Zealand, so I'm nearly exactly opposite Alistair. Not exactly. Actually, I was just watching a TikTok of a, of a scientist explaining that if you drilled a hole from anywhere in the continental United States or Alaska or Hawaii, you cannot get to China. Yes, correct. Because <laughs> Even though we, as children, always grow up thinking if you drilled, they always told us if you drilled a hole through the earth, you'd get to China. I literally did not know that that was just silliness until this week. Yeah, your antipode is all in the water. I'm sure there's a little island somewhere if you're very, 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 very lucky. <laughs> like Easter Island or something. You, know, you find yourself with a cool head. Uh, anyway, the Australians, unfortunately, have had a very bad time with things. They have a very large cell phone company called Optus, who are extremely bad at IT security. And they had an API endpoint that was publishing out name, date of birth, cell phone number, and the serial number of your ID that you gave them when you were signing up which was completely, totally and utterly unauthenticated. So you could simply call the URL and you pass it a customer ID and it gave you back all of their personal details. And it appears that the customer IDs were sequential. 
So you <laughs> could just read the database. Oh, wow. 20 million records. Bye-bye. And so, what kind of records did they lose? So it was name, date of birth, cell phone number, and ID number. So the number of your government-issued ID. Of your cell phone. Oh, your government-issued ID. Yeah, so either driver's license or passport. Oh. Depending on which ID you used when you signed up. Wow. Yeah, not good. So the biggest dangers there are obviously targeted phishing, because they know enough about you to convincingly pretend to be Optus. Right. And identity theft might be an issue because of those serial numbers. Yeah, why do you call them serial numbers? That's what the article calls them, so... Apparently, my driver's license has a number that makes it my driver's license. We call it a DID number. I'm guessing the Australians. Okay. I know my passport has a serial number on it. Don't know what it okay. is, but it has one. Interesting. We we don't call them serial numbers. They're just your passport number, or they're your government issued ID number. <laughs> or not? I don't know. Anyway, yeah. Either way, the the number the, the, on your yeah yeah. <laughs> They're not the whole ID. It's not like they got a photo of the ID. They just got the, the thing that yeah. identifies them. Yeah. Anyway. Right, right, yeah. right. So that is obviously not good. Um, and there's also a lot of, it's getting a lot of publicity, a lot of fallout. There is talk that Optus may be forced to pay to issue everyone a new ID. Oh my gosh. Which Are might be a deterrent. Me? That might be oh an effective deterrent against other companies. That, you know, 20 yeah. million IDs. Yeah, that might do it. Oh, what a mess. Yeah. Oh, so that number's oh, that number can be everywhere. Oh. Uh-huh. That's horrible. Uh-huh. I think that might be worse for the customers than than the uh the penalty mm-hmm. for a few. It, it does rather depend on how on how valuable that number is for doing identity theft. If that number is enough mm-hmm. to get you most of the way to opening a bank account in someone else's name, it just might be worth the effort. Yeah. Wow. But everybody will be angry. Either way they do it, everybody will be angry. I predict. And uh, (laughs) Troy Hunt has been blogging a fair bit about it because it's not just making the tech press in Australia. It's making the mainstream media. And it's getting Mm -hmm. a lot of attention. Oh, I would think so. Yeah, and people are darn cranky. (laughs) Darn cranky. Wow. Moving on to notable news then. Um... Adware on Google Play and Apple Store installed 13 million times is the headline from Bleeping Computer. So what this is, is apps which are in both of those app stores, which when you open them up, they basically fraudulently throw ads at you. The fraud is against the people who they are buying the ads from. So they're pretending to do ad impressions that they're not really doing. They're chewing up your CPU massively, therefore draining your mobile phone's battery. And it's a garbage app, right? So it is, it's adware. What do you mean it's chewing it up? It's chewing it up to do what? What's the, what's the, what do they gain? They gain the money for showing ads they're not really showing. So they're defrauding advertising oh. companies. Oh. <laughs> so they're not even showing you ads. They're doing, they're both. They're showing you ads and simulating showing you ads. So you're seeing about a 10, I think it's about a 10th of the ads that they're doing, they're showing on screen and the other nine they're doing in hidden iframes. Wow. So that, that, that's genius. They've managed to make everyone hate them. Pretty much. Yeah. So Yeesh. now what's interesting is that it is in both app stores, but the ratio is interesting. 10 iOS apps, 75 Android apps. Hmm. So it seems to be easier to get into Android. Um, Maybe. 
Maybe. Either yeah. way, the apps have been booted from both app stores. But uh, interestingly, Android, when an app is deleted from the Play Store, Google have the power to pull it out of people's phones. But Apple don't have the power to r- pull an app out of iPhones. So people with iPhones with these apps installed actually have to delete them themselves. Which is That's interesting. Kind of surprising because remember ages ago they got in trouble for pulling. Well, they pulled two things. They pulled a book from mm. iBooks and which is now called Books, but it was iBooks back then. And they pulled a, a song from music. Yeah. So no, they pushed a song. That was it. They pushed it. it was oh, the other was, that was the opposite, wasn't it? That was the, yeah. our Irish friends and you two made the whole world cranky with. Like we don't mind forced being offered music. free music, but being force fed free music. <laughs> I would be offended. But anyway, but they've been able to pull a book. I wonder why they can't pull an app. I guess it's... So the book doesn't leave their app. Yeah, maybe the pulling the book went so bad that they decided not to do it with apps. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, it's probably like a a decision they made. And it was probably... I wonder if they can push an alert going, hey, this is crapware. Do you want me to remove it for you? And you have to agree to it. They might be able to do that. Or hypothetically, they could send a software update down to block it, because I'm pretty sure iOS has the equivalent of XProtect. It's interesting. We shall shall see. Well, if you're curious, uh, the link Bart posted in the show notes has a list of all the iOS apps and all the Android apps. It's... uh, It doesn't have all the Android apps. The Android apps... Well, it's got a link to to it. It's got a link to it. So, yes, it does. Uh, and the iOS app is, uh, those are uh, obviously a bit shorter, but uh, yeah, you can take a quick look and see whether you've gotten any of those. looks like they're all games. Yeah, and I have a feeling you probably noticed if there's an app splam- spatting, spitting ads out at you and, you know, making your phone get warm as its CPU is going nuts. Yeah. You probably won't be running them very often. Um, the next story then you put into the show notes, and it's not a happy joy joy one at all. I, I think you should explain it. So, the CIA, basically, a bunch of, at least some spies ended up arrested. So, American spies in Iran got arrested by Iranian authorities because the CIA provided them with a communication channel that was childishly poorly secured. It was a fairly not convincing fake website, and the idea was that you would use the search box as a pretend password field and then you could get into an interface where you could type a secret message for your handler. So it's sort of like a digital equivalent of the old leave it under a stone at the park kind of thing. (laughs) Uh, But they didn't actually make the search box a believable search box. If you do a view source, it was like input type equals password. And they put all of these websites on sequential IP addresses. And like I say, the HTML code couldn't have a bigger neon sign on it to say what it was doing if you tried. So this was stupendously and spectacularly insecure. Explain why that is a neon sign. Well, there's a couple of reasons. So the the naming of things had stuff like secret message and stuff in it, but input type equals password is how you make a text box turn to stars when you type instead of turn to text when you type. So if you went to that URL and started typing anything in, in the URL bar? Oh, no, the pretend search box. Ah, okay. In the search box. Got it. Yeah, it, it, it's just so amateurish. You shouldn't be able to view source and see, oh, look, this is a spy app. <laughs> the very least, name it waffles and pancakes. <laughs> right, right. And it, it, I mean, this would be hilarious if it wasn't for the fact that 
you know, in the real world, being a spy in Iran is kind of dangerous. I would think so. Yeah. Well, the guy was arrested. One of the guys was arrested, like, according to the the headline from Reuters, 10 minutes before getting out of the country. Spent a decade in prison. Yeah. 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 I'm just spitballing, but I'm guessing that Iranian prisons are not a nice place to be. Having listened to interviews with hostages over the years, you've spent some time there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, go with that. Not that any prison is is a bag of tricks, but uh, yeah. Yeah. On the on all the right, spectrum. any good news? Yes, <laughs> thankfully, I, I very carefully saved this last one for la- uh, this good news for last. So, I like Cloudflare as a company. They have earned the respect of the internet community by being a having a business model that isn't evil, and b being good netizens and contributing positively to their life on the internet with their services. And they have a very nice freemium model that is, like I say, not based on stealing your PII. And it's just, they're just a company that do things well. They're also technologically extremely able. They do very good stuff. They like to work with the open source community in a constructive way. They're just one of those companies that give out happy vibes. I just, I just like Cloudflare. I also happen to like Apple because I think they line up with my sensibilities very well. And I really like the fact that in the last couple of years, Apple and Cloudflare have worked together on a lot of things. Like Cloudflare is one of the providers of the uh, app, the, the privacy proxy stuff built into the latest iOSs and stuff. You know, they like working with each other. And do you remember at WWDC, there were two cryptographic cool security features. One of them was pass keys, which was so cool, it took all of the limelight. And the second one was something called private access tokens or PATS, which promised to give us an end to evil captures, assuming someone important in the industry ran with it. Okay. I do vaguely remember that. Basically, you use cryptography so that your iPhone attests to the fact that you are a human instead of you having to prove it by figuring out where the traffic lights are. Um... And we said that this would all depend on someone implementing these public APIs, because it's not just an Apple thing, it's actually a public API. It's a public standard. And someone it's not would just have to iPhone. Ab- and it's not just iPhone, because Apple are doing it across the board in iOS, iPadOS, and macOS Ventura. So it is mm-hmm. coming to all of Apple's OSs, and others are perfectly free to do it too, and hopefully they will. But it all depended on whether anyone who's big in the capture game would actually run with it. And obviously, if Google decide to run with it, we're absolutely sorted. But uh, Cloudflare have just released a new, it's now a beta, so it's only available to Cloudflare customers while it's a beta. But once it's out of beta, it will be completely free in the same way that Google's reCAPTCHA is completely free. And it will be really easy to implement on your website. And uh, any Mac or iPhone user or iPad or iPhone user on the modern operating system will simply never see it because it fully supports private access tokens. And does it have a name? It is called Turnstile. So as a regular user, I don't need to know Turnstile. I don't need to know Cloudflare. I'm just wherever I go on the internet or only when I go to Cloudflare properties, When it, uh, where is this going to be in effect? So neither of those things. So you know the way Google's recapture. <laughs> so I do have to worry my pretty little head? No, okay. You, no, but it's not going to be either everywhere or only on Cloudflare side. Okay. So, you know the way reCAPTCHA is technically by Google, but 
it's a free I didn't know that, service. But... Oh, okay. Google own reCAPTCHA. So it's a free service. And any web website owner can just include it with a simple little piece of JavaScript they stick on their website and a little piece of PHP they put on the backend server. So anyone is free to put Google's reCAPTCHA on their website to protect their website. And it's a free, it's a free option and everyone can just do it. Now there's another free option that anyone who owns a website can use instead, which is Turnstile. And when it comes out of beta, it will be completely available to everyone. So you as an end user are going to find that some websites just work and you never even think about it. And other websites hmm. still have that annoying thing from Google. Interesting. So you may not even notice. You as a user should it's just the... The absence of annoyance is not something you... If you've, there's a site you go to all the time and you're always being annoyed, you might notice it went away, but you might not. Unless you're a slider, right? If you're a slider, say, Nightwise would notice that when he's on his Linux machine, he has to go through a capture on his favorite website, but when he's on his iPhone, he doesn't. But Linux could certainly implement it. Linux. Linux would <laughs> have to... put it under yeah, one say, title. Who... Linux would have to work with someone because it involves a trusted backend, right? So the reason it works is because Cloudflare and Apple trust each other. So Cloudflare believe your iPhone's attestation that you are a human. So, so Apple proving, somehow proved it to them? Apple cryptographically signed it, and they believe Apple's assertion. So the way okay. reCAPTCHA works is that you prove it by solving a puzzle. The way this works is that the trust comes from your iPhone. So Cloudflare trusts Apple not to lie and say that bots are humans. I find the whole reCAPTCHA thing fascinating that some of them are clearly designed to make you hate them. If I never get asked again where a bridge is or a motorcycle, I'll be really happy because I'm wrong at least 50% of the time. And it's often on the phone, it's quite tiny, and so it's really mm -hmm. hard to see. And yet when I'm shown the, the CAPTCHA that lets me drag a little puzzle piece over... I'm really happy. I solved a puzzle. You know, they're, they're completely different and they're doing a lot of the same thing. Or which of these two things are the same? Oh, there's an A and an A. Let me click both of those and I feel like I solved a puzzle. I'm happy. I'm never happy when I have to find a bridge or a motorcycle. Yeah, and that's kind of because you're being used. You're being used to train AI. Well, right, right. But if they don't know what a bridge is by now, they're never going to learn. And they're not learning because we're wrong all the time because it doesn't, you can't tell. No, but the thing is, we don't know either. No, no, on average, we're not, on average, more of us are right mm. than wrong. So well, when you do why it do they thousand, keep asking that's Why do they keep asking that same question then? Why is it so often bridge if they've got it figured out? If we're, if we're answering correctly, it should be done with that one and be asking us camels versus alpacas by now or something. <laughs> I don't know, I think it might have something to do with automated driving, because they seem to be obsessed with traffic lights, bicycles, and bridges. Oh, well, I don't get bicycles. I get motorcycles. I get bicycles. I get bicycles Maybe because there's a lot more bicycles. Yeah, no, bicycles are really hard, <laughs> because is it a bicycle or not? Does this front wheel jutting out onto the edge of the frame count as a bicycle? Mm. I don't like them. But you're right, you're absolutely right. They're yick, 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 yick. Yeah. So this will be a much nicer experience for us. And if you're curious, the Apple did a session at WWDC all about them, linked in show notes. Great. Uh, that then brings us on to top tips. Uh, so three useful articles I came across. So the first one is from Apple Insider, how to build a tech emergency kit. I would like to say that none of us should need to worry about this kind of stuff. But you know something? Even here in Ireland, I actually have an emergency bag next to the front door. 
Mostly it was because my darling beloved very often had to go to the hospital at very short notice. But it serves exactly the same function as if we were in the path of likely hurricanes. It's a bag mm. that contains enough stuff for us to get by for a day or two. And it contains a lot of tech in our case. And there's actually some really nice links in there to make it contain better tech. So I'm going to be upgrading our go bag. Um, but it's just it's a reminder that this kind of thing is horrible to think about, but important to do. And some links to good products to stick in there while you're at it. They do seem like to like seem to like anchor. They do rather, but so do I. So I think that. <laughs> so do you actually like. keep this stuff by the door? Because I have the yeah. uh, this same kind of stuff. I mean, it's got like a solar charger and a and a giant battery and some lightning cables and USB C cables, that sort of thing. Those are in my backpack, but it's up here in my closet. It's not down by the door. Well, so in my case, it is sitting next. It's basically within arm's reach of the door next to the front door. So when I'm, I, when I, hmm. it's basically a few steps from the front door. It's hmm. in a bright red bag. And so that's not something you ever use and carry. Like if you go to your mom's house, you wouldn't carry that with you. No, no, it's that is dedicated to the emergency. Yeah, which has a yeah. We own like I bought extra chargers. And I bought extra power strips. And then you got to go remember to charge those. The ones you use all the time, you'll keep charged. I found a way. To, I, to, I found about. a way to make myself do that. Um, one of the things it contains is a one of these little MiFi-like devices. It's not from MiFi; it's from a different company. But it's one of those devices. And the Tesla can't see my house Wi-Fi. So every time Tesla does a software update, the MiFi comes out of the emergency bag to update my car, and then all the power blocks get charged along with the MiFi, and then it all goes back in the emergency bag. So I'm at Elon Musk's so, mercy. That's kind of funny. That, well, but he's your reminder because you're messing around in that bag. Yeah, exactly. So it does work. And I have it all. Gridit is one of my favorite products. I think I've put you... I think I've mentioned Gridit loads of times. It's like a square... Mm slab of elastic bands that are really grippy and you can stick anything in them and so one of the main features in the emergency bag is a gridded with every type of charger imaginable and the MiFi and you know all that kind of techie stuff i was a big fan of gridded when i found them at uh at ces many years ago but uh i stopped carrying them because they had weight and i am all about make it my bag weigh less because my bag is too heavy because i carry so much crap in it <laughs> So it might be a little bank, messier. Yeah, for an emergency bank to be able to see at a glance that everything is where it should be. Yeah. And you're not like, you hope to goodness the weight of the emergency bag is not a regular problem. <laughs> I suppose so, yeah. Well, my emergency kit's out in the shed because it's for earthquakes. Yeah, so it needs to be somewhere got that a completely different set of things. Yeah, yeah, that's the problem is you've got to predict what's not going to be squished. Yeah, yeah. Good luck. Yeah. yeah. Like here, you know, we have all sorts of problems, but the ground moving is not one I'm familiar with. I find that very hard to compute. We, we literally describe things as being as, you know, rock solid. Like, yeah, but your rocks move. Anyway, uh, so that was the first. Uh, so, um, sorry, the second one is some nice advice. If you just switch to iOS 16, you got a shiny new feature. You can now go into your keychain access equivalent on iOS and get a list of all the passwords Apple thinks you should update. So Really? Yeah, it's kind of huh. like the Watchtower feature in 1Password, but it's built in on iOS for free. So, you know, hey, great, you know, great for people who don't uh, go the extra mile with the fancy pants one and just use the built-in password manager. Interesting. Cool. 
And then a feature in iOS we've talked about a few times is a thing called safety check, which is where you can very quickly disable all of your sharing if you end up in the unfortunate situation that you need to run away from an abusive spouse or something like that. And so Apple Insider, now that the OS is out, Apple Insider have a nice walkthrough showing you how you would actually use it and you can actually, you know, at least step towards the main screen on your phone, even if you're not going to actually click go. So Hmm. I have this one bookmarked in my, I have a folder I keep in pocket called um, for reference. And so I know that if anyone ever comes to me in a panic going, I need to block so-and-so out of such and such, I can just pull this thing out and say, yeah, go here, do this. So I just think it's an important one to keep safe. And, uh, oh no, I have one more interesting insight. Um, So, there's lots of little ways that I think iOS is a little bit safer than Android. And one of the biggest little ways is that we tend to get more reliable software updates for longer with less of a difference between vendors because there's only one vendor. But another more subtle way is that iOS apps tend to get abandoned more slowly than Android apps. So you tend to have less outdated, dangerous stuff hanging around in your phone. Um, there is a company called uh, Pixelate who track this every quarter. And their most recent quarterly report shows that on iOS, abandoned apps are down 29% because Apple did a giant big cleanup. And on Android, they're up 16%. Which is What's the one. definition of an, an abandoned app? No update in two years. Yeah, you know, that that's starting to really irritate developers because there's a lot of cases where there's there's there isn't an update. There's nothing new. And they're having to go in and say, okay, I'm gonna change the border of this box from dark blue to slightly darker blue. No, they don't have to do that. What they have to do is recompile it with the latest uh, compiler from Apple so that it develops automatic support for different shape screens and stuff. So literally they just have to recompile and resubmit. They don't have to change the line of code. Hmm. That's not what they think. I I see a lot in Twitter of people complaining, developers complaining about having to submit things that aren't real changes. Well, that is very much in disagreement. Maybe they misunderstand. To be honest, they do. I'm just going to go out and say it, they do. They don't get it. Um, I'm very confident on this one. Um, Okay, we get to cleanse our palate. Um, And I think you like this one. Uh, Because I'm pretty sure if I hadn't put this in the show notes, you would have put this in the show notes. <laughs> so I'm going to say we. I'm pretty sure the Europeans had nothing to do with this, and it's we as in mankind. But to be honest, it's really NASA. Anyway, DART is the double asteroid redirection test. And the problem to be solved was, can we nudge an asteroid so it changes its course? Because hypothetically, we might discover one heading our way. And rather than sending Bruce Willis up with a nuclear weapon to turn it in from one asteroid into thousands of asteroids, so that it will, instead of it being a rifle shot, it's scatter shot, and it'll destroy us all the same. Instead, we should nudge it out of the way. So we sent a probe towards an asteroid in orbit around another asteroid. And the idea was that we would ram into it at full speed. And in so doing, slow it down enough that we could measure the change in its orbit, and then we would know how effective we are at changing the course of asteroids and things. And this, like when I say it's a little asteroid orbiting a big asteroid, it's like 150 meters across or something like that. It's tiny. And uh, NASA hit it 17 whole meters off exact dead center where they wanted to be. And it's 6.8 million miles away from Earth. 
11 million kilometers away. What, what amazed me, I watched this real time as it happened, and it was so exciting, but it, what, was, what was fascinating was like 15, 20 minutes before the impact, it was still so tiny, you couldn't see Dimorphos separate from, what is it, Didy? Didymus. Something is the, Didymus. Didymus? Yeah. You couldn't you couldn't distinguish the tiny uh, satellite from the big one. You know, you you couldn't see them apart. And then all of a sudden they came apart, and then then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you saw you actually saw the giant boulders on the asteroid. It was really really cool. It was a very exciting moment to watch something smash into. You know, yeah, seven normally million you're hoping miles misses, away. right? How often do you sit there going, "Go on, head on collision, head on collision, head on collision." <laughs> And what I haven't heard is when they said only three or four days before we would know whether we successfully changed its traje- trajectory the way the modeling suggested it would be. I, I, it would, I, I haven't seen it. I hadn't heard that three or four days number. I had heard very vague, we will know soon kind of numbers. And th- okay. I definitely haven't During heard During the news anything. conference, as they were talking about it, they said it would be uh, three or four days, but... Uh, that's, I certainly yeah, haven't cool. heard anything more. It's definitely darn cool. I believe also that um, the AI kind of had to take over and drive because, like you say, it was so close to the end where they could finally see which is which that the this, the probe had to decide for itself whether they go left or right. Wow. Which is cool. So the video it's is actually cool. what you describe. So it's the front view out of the front of the impactor and you can just see the asteroid getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and then it stops. <laughs> Because it's smashed. Half of it goes red. (laughs) Um, And then the other second link is to a photograph, because just before it went on its little collision course, it spat a CubeSat out the back uh, from an Italian university. It's called Lycia Cube, which had a camera on board. So there's a picture from space of one probe smashing into an asteroid. So basically you see the asteroid in a giant big cloud of smoke, (laughs) which I just think is so cool. That is crazy cool. Those are good palate cleansers, for sure. We love some space, don't we, Bart? I certainly do. And I know, yeah, you're really good about watching it all live. I'm terrible. I just blame the time zones. But uh, I really <laughs> Well, there is somebody in my house who puts it on my calendar. This one I oh, put literally. on my own calendar because he was, he was camping at the time. Uh, but I put it on my calendar. Oh, so you were separated in miles, but both watching an asteroid on the other side of the solar system being smashed into. I like it. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, this was good, Bart. Thank you for coming on. Even just after a week, we found some fun stuff to talk about. We did indeed. And until next time, folks, remember to stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Did you know you can email me at allison at podfeed.com anytime you like? Ask me questions, send in a suggestion, or you know, do a review. You can follow me on Twitter, too, at podfeed. If you want to join in the fun of the conversation, you can join our Slack community at podfeed.com slash Slack, and you can talk to me and all of the other lovely Nocilla castaways. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You can support the show at podfeed.com slash Patreon or with a one-time donation at podfeed.com slash PayPal like John Murray does, except he actually does it once a quarter. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.